So the sermon reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, 
and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. <clears throat> so David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from the king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labour with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brickmaking. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Um, keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 12. That'd be really helpful. Seems funny to jump back to Samuel, uh, doesn't it? We actually trail behind Harrington Park in the preaching program by a week. Uh, for kind of efficiency's sake. Uh, so we, did, we lined up for three weeks over Christmas and now we're finishing off our series. Having said that, I think this is a really good passage to start the year with and don't worry too much if you can't remember kind of term four um, to Samuel teaching or if you're new or visiting today and you didn't do it at all, don't, don't be alarmed. Um, you, it's very much self-contained and we will see the big idea right before our eyes. But let me pray for us as we come to God's Word. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for your Word. It's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates, both, uh, it penetrates our hearts. And we pray now that it will penetrate us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you're working us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, convict us of the need for holiness and then give us the tools and equip us to be holy we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Chris and I didn't actually talk before he did his kid spot, but it's, it's New Year's Day, so I guess it's pretty obvious. Any news, was there any New Year's resolutions? Does anyone actually make New Year's resolutions that they're, they're willing to share with the whole class? Is anyone? John just put his hand up, but he's fixing the projector. Um, is there any, did anyone make any New Year's resolutions at all? It's okay if you didn't, really. Anyone? No, 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 no. Because it's silly, isn't it? Is it silly? Um, I think, I don't know that I make news resolutions, but I feel a, I often feel a renewed sense of conviction to commit to good habits. <laughs> I don't know if you can relate to that at all when the new year rolls around. I'm like, I really want to commit to some good new habits this year. Sleep and exercise are always right up there for kind of good habits that I'd like to commit to. Go to bed on time and I'm a bit of a bandit for staying up late. I don't know if I was working three years of shift work or something. I, I can... I cope with late nights fairly well, so that's a, that's a trap. Um, uh, yeah, I wonder if you've got any spiritual New Year's resolutions uh, today to be more prayerful, to be to read your Bible more, to start that kind of. Has anyone kind of started the the year in the Bible in a year before and then got to February and. I saw a thing on Facebook the other day, it said, <laughs> there's some um, honesty happening up the back. Um, I saw on Facebook that they, this person posted, it's not too late, to, if you're only up to Leviticus, it's not too late, you can just do Leviticus to blah, and today, and in, in, in a week, you could read kind of three quarters of the Bible if you, anyway. Perhaps you've started reading the Bible in a year, which is a really good thing to do, and then it's kind of fallen by the wayside, and today, you're going to get back on it uh, once again. That'd be a good thing to do, read the Bible in a year. 
Well, it's not really a light and fluffy passage for New Year's Day, is it? I mean, you kind of want a nice, joyous, hey, it's a new year, but it's not like that. But I think it's really helpful. I think it's a really helpful passage uh, for us today. So we're going to jump in. Um, I think in this chapter is a really important goal for 2023 for us all. And I, I, think, it's a real, so I think it's a really helpful chapter to look at right now as we see this really important goal for us all as we commit to uh, the new year. So let's have a look. Now, if you can remember, and you're doing very well if you can, the context for this part of God's true word is this devastating turn of events in chapter 11. Uh, King David, the one chosen by God, anointed by God, uh, blessed with victory over all his enemies every time, including Goliath, the great giant, and he had a you know, sling and a stone and, and he beat this really huge guy. Why? Because he's a really good shot? No, because God always blessed him with victory. God was with him uh, in all things. He gave him blessing inside his kingdom and he started to be a blessing outside his kingdom. He was looking for other people to bless, including the, the king uh, we saw in chapter 10. Has fallen into sin in the most spectacular of fashions. So I think, the, I think the first lesson we've got right up front is that sin is always crouching at the door, ready to devour us. And we always, always need to be on our guard. Uh, and David wasn't. He was wandering around on his uh, rooftop of his palace, which is obviously very high. And he looked down and he saw a woman bathing on her rooftop, which she was, uh, seems like it's not the right thing to do, but it was. She was. It was a perfectly legitimate thing to be doing. She was cleansing herself after her monthly uncleanness, the Bible talks about. And uh, he saw her and he liked what he saw in her nakedness. And so he decided to commit adultery with her and he had her brought to him um, and he committed adultery with her. And he tried to cover it up, um, but he couldn't. And so he had her husband murdered uh, and took her to be his wife. He took another man to be his wife. He committed sin in the most horrendous and spectacular of fashions. And the deeper horror, if it was possible, is just how calculating he was. He sent someone to her and then he sent someone to Uriah and Uriah, you know, wasn't kind of going along with David's plan to cover over his sin. And so it was just so calculated. Um, and, and there's no sense over the past... It's been a year when we get to chapter 12. It's been a year since he committed this sin. There's no sense that he's been repentant uh, for his sin in any way. There's no indication from God's word uh, that this despicable crime and this despicable sin uh, he has in any way shown any remorse for. So God decides to act against David. Our God is a God of justice, which is a wonderful thing. We live in a world with many, many gross injustices going on all the time. And as Christians, we live knowing that it will not go unpunished, that one day there'll be a great reckoning uh, for all sin and sin will not be left unpunished. God is a God of justice. And so justice is what we see done in this passage. And it might surprise you in many ways, kind of, it might shock you and it might surprise you joyously as well. So God sends the prophet Nathan to confront the king, which is always a scary thing to do because he's a king. And Nathan does this initially by fashioning a story to reveal David's sin to him. So we read again, I'll read it again for you. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, 
there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. It's a beautiful picture and it's a brilliant story that ensnares David brilliantly. And a few things I want to point out from the story. Um, The rich man, it says, had flocks and herds. It seems that they were bequeathed to him. He had them, but the poor man... The one little ewe lamb that he had, he had bought. He had worked for and he bought this one ewe lamb uh, for himself. And he loved it dearly. It ate from his plate, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his bed. He treated it like his very own child. I won't look for a show of hands, but anyone got dogs or cats that you allow to eat from your plate, drink from your cup, sleep in your bed? Perhaps you can relate to uh, this poor man with his ewe lamb that he treasured dearly. Now, obviously Uriah is the poor man in the story. David is the rich man. And Bathsheba is represented by the lamb in the story that the man treasured. Uh, As Uriah treasured his wife, he treasured her dearly. She was his everything to him. He didn't have a lot, but he had her and he loved her dearly. And notice the poor man is a giver. He gave food to the little lamb. He gave drink. He even gave his bed. Now, there's a direct correlation here between the three things that Uriah refused to take when David was trying to cover up his sin. Okay, so stay with me. Chapter 11, verse 8. David tries to get, I'll read it in a minute. David tries to get Uriah to go back home Uh, and sleep with his wife so that if she does fall pregnant, it'll look like Uriah had caused her to fall pregnant, not David. So that's how he's trying to cover up this sin. David said to Uriah, back in chapter 11, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. He's really trying to butter him up. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah didn't go home. He asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign like you've been fighting? Why wouldn't you go home to freshen up and make love to your wife? Uriah said, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents in war. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Eat, drink, make love to my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah was a good and righteous man who, who couldn't come at the thought of leaving his army to, to kind of chill out at home when they're all encamped uh, in battle. Couldn't do it. Uriah wanted little in life and he gave a lot. Back to the story. A traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it, that is, cut it up and cooked it and gave it to the traveller. The rich man took the one lamb that the poor man owned and loved dearly, prepared it and fed it to this random traveller. Now, this is the story. How will the king respond? And the king hasn't yet put two and two together. This story is talking about him at all. Well, King David blows his top. He's absolutely kind of 
just flabbergasted. He's so angry. He burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, a couple of things to notice here. Firstly, the punishment for stealing a lamb under Levitical law was not death. And the king ought to know this. He's the king. He's the number one justice deliverer, giver in the land. He's number one. And he says he deserves death, but he doesn't. He deserves the punishment under Levitical law is actually a fourfold restitution, which is the second thing he said, must pay for the lamb four times over. Now, the king ought to know this. Secondly, where does he get off judging another for a a small crime, actually, stealing a lamb, compared to the heinous crime that he's committed and he seems completely unrepentant about. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the the rich man and your crime is a hundred times worse. And look at your anger and wrath at this man. Sad as it was that the rich man took his neighbor's lamb, very awful, especially when you know how much he loved his lamb. David stole his neighbor's wife and killed his neighbor. And then has the audacity to point the finger at someone else when he's living in sin in this terrible way. I wonder if sometimes we too can be guilty of being quick to judge others and slow to judge ourselves. I wonder, can we too be sometimes quick to judge others and slow to judge ourselves? I know I can sometimes. I think it makes it easier to live with our own shortcomings if we keep our gaze fixed on everybody else's shortcomings in the world around us and perhaps in our family around us. But you can see the hypocrisy, can't you? of someone who's sinning and he knows it and then he points a finger at someone else and says, what a terrible person you are for sinning in that way. So I think this is a little lesson to make us take stock and go, you know what, <laughs> we all sin. Am I, kind of, am I judging myself first before I'm pointing the finger at other people? All right, let's read on. The shattering judgment of the Lord comes down upon David. Nathan hands down the judgment of the Lord in two parts. This is possibly the most dramatic scene in history until the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross. David, King David is God's chosen, anointed king, chosen to rule over God's precious people, Israel. And it is beyond a tragedy that he behaved in this way, a devastation. It's devastating that God's judgment must come down upon his own chosen, anointed king. It's not God's will that his people should sin and he should judge them, but he is a God of justice and so he does. And in the passage we get firstly the the judgment for the murder of Uriah and then we get the judgment for his adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan reminds David of all that he's been given before he hands down the first step to contentment and the best guard against coveting is to remember all that we've already been given, is to practice thankfulness anyway. Nathan, uh, verse 7, hands down the judgment for his murder. He said to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you 
From the hand of Saul, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. If all this had been too little, I would have even given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. See the emphatic I from the Lord? I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you. I would have given you even more. David has despised the word of the Lord and in doing so directly despised God himself. Back at the start of 1 Samuel, we saw the same thing by the sons of Eli, the same sort of wickedness and the same judgment from God. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, God says, Far be it from me, not to judge, those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. And we see God's promise enacted. He takes away his blessing from his king because of his sin. Now, we've got to be asking ourselves, how far is God's judgment going to go? Is he going to take away God's his blessing from David completely, forever? Will he revoke, revoke his promise as David, to David as his anointed king? Will he cast him out of his kingdom? He certainly deserves it. Is David doomed forever? Well, his first judgment is that the sword will never leave his household. It was with the sword that David took Uriah's life and it will be with the sword that trouble and calamity shall now enter his household in, uh, in judgment for his actions. And we see this, as you read on in 2 Samuel, you see that it's just disastrous uh, for David's household from this point forward. That's the first judgment. The second judgment is for his adultery. Nathan says this, because you despised me, took the wife of Uriah to be your own. This is what the Lord says. <coughs> Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And astonishingly, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Blessing turns to punishment as God promises that he will raise up evil in place of blessing in David's house. And the punishment for his adultery is his wives will be taken from him and given to other men. And although David's adultery was committed in secret, God's just punishment will be made public so that everyone knows that David is being punished by the Lord for his sin. And finally, finally, David repents of his sin after a year. And we ought not feel any pity whatsoever for David. God's judgment is just, and David has brought this upon himself. 
His conscience did not bring him to repentance after he saw Bathsheba and he went ahead and he slept with her. Did Bathsheba plead for him to stop? We don't know. He didn't stop and he didn't repent after sleeping with Bathsheba. Twice he tried to trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife to cover over his sin, but Uriah refused out of righteous honour. And Uriah's righteousness didn't bring David to repentance either for sleeping with his wife. And then he had Uriah killed. And there was no repentance for that whatsoever. The word came back to him, Uriah is dead, he's been killed. David very coldly said, okay, great, good to know. And took Bathsheba to be his wife. <clears throat> A year of contemplation, staring at Bathsheba across the breakfast table, doesn't seem to have brought him to repentance either. It took the shattering word of God to bring David's hardened heart to its knees. And he rightly exclaimed, finally, I've sinned. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his kingdom. But most importantly and devastatingly, he sinned against his Lord who anointed him king over Israel. Now what are we to make of verse 14? That seems harsh, doesn't it? God inflicted the baby with an illness and at seven days old the child died. That's, that's hard. And you might have lots of questions. I certainly have a few questions. Is this fair? How come the baby has to die when David committed the sin? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. You probably have other questions. And I have some thoughts that may not be adequate to answer your questions. Well, feel free to talk to me later if you've still got questions. Here's some thoughts. Why didn't David cop it instead of the baby? Well, David did in one sense. He had the brutal reality of watching his child suffer and die as a consequence of his sin. We know that our lives before and after death are in the hands of the Lord before we're born, after we're born, after we die. Our hands are in the Lord. We can only... And we can only kind of, as readers, as lookers on, we can only kind of entrust this baby to, go, to a good God, a good loving God that he's, he's going to do what's good and right for the child. Who are we to question why God gives life to anybody? Who are we to question why God takes life away from anybody? God is God. And this is, the, this is the devastating effect that sin can have. I don't believe this is a punishment for David's sin. I believe this is a consequence of David's sin. Because he was forgiven by God in the previous verse, verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin, but because by doing this, you've shown utter contempt and the child will die. Tragically, this child represents, because he was born, because the child was born as a result of the adultery, this child represents God's disdaining, David's disdaining of God, his dishonoring of God. David was God's anointed king. 
it makes his sin far, far worse. And he went and despised God so deliberately and dramatically that the fruit of his sin must be taken away in order for justice to be done, in order for honour to be restored to God. That's the harsh and probably unsatisfying reality of the situation. We think very individualistic today. We think about the rights of the child, and rightly so. I'm very keen to think about the rights of children uh, in our day and age, which our world largely doesn't, particularly unborn children. But we also must cling to God's goodness and trust his decision and see the bigger picture here, I think, that's going on. Any questions, ask me later. As we press on to the end of our passage, we again see the extraordinary gracious character of God on display once more. Going back to verse 13, this astonishing verse, David said, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. David did nothing to earn God's forgiveness. He simply repented and God in his mercy and kindness forgave David for his sin, though the consequences of his sin remained. Do you see the difference? There's forgiveness for sin from God. There's, there's relational restoration between David and God, but the consequences of sin remain and they plague David's household for the rest of his life. Despite his terrible crime, which deserves death under Levitical law, God is gracious to his anointed one, as he always has been. He accepts his repentance, he pardons his sin, he grants him life. God grants David life, even though he deserves death. And at the end of the chapter, we see God grants him victory again, as he promised to always do at the hands of his enemies, the Ammonites. We're not going to cover that in detail this morning. Now, the great jewel in God's graciousness, I think, is God working not only to keep his promises that a saviour will come from the line of David, but God bringing about his good and his glory despite human sin and wickedness. God's promise was that a saviour will come from the line of David and it's out of his marriage to Bathsheba, which was started by adultery, that this, this, this line is continued. God is, a man, God is a God who keeps his promises, is faithful to his word, and despite the wickedness and sinfulness of human beings, God brings about and keeps his promises through even our wickedness. Can you see that? We, we ought not to sin. And we will feel the effects and the consequences in our own lives if we do. But even if we do sin, God will still bring about his goodness and his glory through our wickedness. It's better if we don't. But he will keep working and he'll keep his promises even when we don't keep ours. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her. He made love to her. She gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah, to kind of give him a title, Jedediah. Now, no doubt Bathsheba was horrendously grieved at the loss of their son. And David, who now seems to have his heart restored again, comforts his wife rightly. They lay together and God blesses them with a son, Solomon, who God loves. And Jedediah means beloved of God. It's not that 
They were supposed to name him Jedediah, but they named him Solomon accidentally. Um, Jedediah means he's beloved of God. God's blessing has now passed from David to his son Solomon, who would become the wisest and wealthiest king the world has ever seen. Okay, what does this all mean for us? Well, firstly, sin's never worth it. I think the best New Year's resolution is a recommitment to holy living for us all. If, if we're already living a holy life, that's great. Keep it up. If maybe we've got a bit lazy in our holiness, let's recommit to living a holy life, living God's way. Sin impacts us. It impacts those we love. And most of all, it despises God's goodness And in doing so, it despises God himself. Sin is never worth it. Sin happens when we stop trusting God. When we willfully distrust God in his goodness, and then we lose contentment, and then we go looking for contentment somewhere else. That's when we fall into sin. Rather than thanking God for his good gifts to us and being content, no matter what our circumstances are, we might be happy, we might be sad in life, but if we're thankful, we'll be content despite our sadness. When we're lazy in our thankfulness, we lose contentment. When we're lazy in our thankfulness, we lose contentment. And when we lose contentment, we'll go to great lengths to get it back, as David did. And it can happen in a moment, can't it? Everything was going great for David. He'd been a blessing to... um, Mephibosheth and people inside his kingdom, he'd been a blessing to the king outside his kingdom. All his enemies were pretty much back in their boxes. He was going great. And that's when he fell into sin. So I think when things are going well, we need to be extra careful and extra thankful when things are going well. Practice thankfulness each and every day in order to guard yourself from sin. Find your deepest satisfaction in the Lord in his saving son, Jesus, in his guiding Holy Spirit, rather than in the fleeting things of this world. And I want to add, in 2023, to practice self-care as much as you're able. Practice self-care. Self-compassion, I heard about it on 103.2 once. I like that term, self-compassion. In 2023, let's all practice spiritual physical and emotional self-care. Find time to listen to God's word somehow. Read the Bible or listen to an audio Bible or a a good Christian book on audio if you you haven't got time or energy or eyesight to be able to read God's word because you're so tired. Find a good habit of prayer that works for you. It might be sitting down for an hour every morning. It might be praying five minutes Throughout the day, here and there, set times. Um, You can tie it to meals or something. Find time to pray, to practice thankfulness to God. Look after yourself physically, sleep, exercise. Find time to do the things that you enjoy, that make you happy. Why am I saying all this? I think when we're sad or when we're tired or lonely or overly stressed or burdened, we're we're more susceptible to sin. 
And so we need to kind of care for ourselves. We need to care for one another. And again, I'm just going to bang on about growth groups again. Growth groups are a great way to care for each other and make sure we're all going okay. And when we're not going okay, we find out and we figure out how we can support one another in any way that we can. Practice self-care. Practice thankfulness to guard against sin, to live a holy life. God is a just God who will not let sins go unpunished. And we've seen today that sin can have devastating consequences for our lives and our loved ones. Okay, but what if we do sin, which we all do, this side of heaven? Well, sin's never worth it, but repentance is always worth it. David sinned. The consequences were grave. I shudder to think what might have happened had he not listened to God and repented. But he did repent and God was gracious, as he always is. He forgave him. He allowed him to live. He gave him victory over his enemies. He blessed him with a son that would rise to become an even greater king than David ever was. Repentance is always worth it. God's ear is ever bent towards us. He's ready for us to say sorry and to turn away from sin. Now, I remember, I know I've been banging on about Gentle and Lowly, the book, Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly, it's really good. It's so good. It's been really encouraging to me. And in Gentle and Lowly, he said, God's natural inclination is mercy and forgiveness. And his strange work is judgment. His natural inclination, what he longs to do, is to be merciful and forgiving. He longs to do that. But he will, but he is a God of justice, so he'll judge when he needs to. And he'll enact justice when he needs to. He knows we will sin. He's with us by the Holy Spirit when we sin, as we're doing it. He's with us by his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is leading us to repentance. And the Father's eager to forgive. So repent. He longs to forgive us. Repent of your sin. And go on in holiness, living for Jesus. Sin leads to guilt. Sin leads to self-loathing. Repentance leads to forgiveness and godly self-confidence that comes from the Lord. That much seemed very clear to me from this passage. Sin's not worth it. Repentance is. Read God's word with an open heart. Allow it to correct, rebuke, train you, even shatter you in your sin, if that's where you're at. Well, that's the path to repentance and forgiveness and blessing. Let me pray. Loving Father, Almighty God, we thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that forgiveness is on offer through Christ if we just are willing to bow the knee and repent. So help us to be people of repentance. Help us to be people of thankfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.